Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, we are going to start this morning to read 2 Corinthians together. Uh, the Apostle Paul and the church that he planted there in Corinth had a close and a very complicated relationship. And this letter that he wrote to them, it is uh, one of the most deeply felt and open-hearted of the letters that we have from his hand. Um, in fact, C.K. Barrett, who was one of the great New Testament theologians of the 20th century, said that writing 2 Corinthians must have come near to breaking Paul. So we'll start reading it this morning. I'll read the first 11 verses for us. And before I read it, I'll just mention that like a lot of Paul's writing, it's kind of dense. And so you may uh, want to follow along where it's printed as I read. So this is uh, 2 Corinthians 1, verses 1 through 11. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is in Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we did not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You must also help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. This is God's word and it's given to us for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask uh, this morning as we start reading this letter that was written a long time ago by somebody we don't know to a bunch of other Um, people that we don't know, that you would even so meet us in it by your spirit. That as we think about this together and talk about it and consider it together, you would meet us in exactly the places where we find ourselves this morning, Uh, in particular, if we have trouble or affliction in our lives, that you would meet us, that you would show us the grace of Jesus and that you'd change us by it. And we ask this in his name, amen. Well, my, uh, my dog has taken up a pretty weird habit of late, <clears throat> or at least it seems weird to me. When I walk him, if he sees or hears a cicada on the ground near us, uh, he chomps it. Uh, he's not actually eating these cicadas, which I would understand because he's a dog. He's just uh, chomping them until they go silent. Uh, it's just a quick chomp. And then he moves on and usually leaves two halves of cicada behind him. 
it's, it's gross and it's a little bit unsettling and, um, and maybe I'm soft, but I, I've tried to like uh, alleviate my queasiness about this whole thing by fantasizing, by trying to convince myself that there is some mutuality that must exist between canine and cicada. You know, um, that the cicadas on the ground, they're obviously in their dying moments anyway, and there is some natural pact that exists between dog and cicada where the dogs will put them out of their misery um, with a quick chomp. I really, really wanted to believe that that's true. However, Google tells me that I am very wrong. <laughs> dogs just really, really like eating cicadas. My uh, dog likes cleaving them in two. There is... Uh, absolutely no mutuality between dog and cicada. And I, uh, I mention that just to say simply by way of stark contrast, that as far as Paul is considered in the part of the letter that we just read, a deep mutuality is completely woven into the life of the church. To follow Jesus in faith, Paul says, is to have our lives inextricably tied to his life. And it is to have our lives inextricably tied to one another's lives. Paul isn't trying to convince anyone that that's true. He is just saying that it is true. An uncommon and deeply meaningful mutuality exists in the life of the church. An uncommon and deeply meaningful mutuality exists in the life of the church, and it goes far beyond shared interests and shared values and goals. It is a mutuality that heals our most profound sorrows and that nourishes our hope and our joy. In short, what Paul is saying is that we need Jesus and we need each other, and we have Jesus and we have each other. So why is Paul saying this to his friends at Corinth? He is saying this to his friends because something terrible has happened. Something terrible has happened in his life and in the life of his friends, something terrible has happened between them. So Paul founded the church in Corinth. He lived there for about a year and a half. In the Corinth of the first century, the Corinth that Paul lived and worked in was truly a great city at that time. Uh, it was probably the third most important city in the Roman Empire after Alexandria and Rome. It was cosmopolitan. It was diverse ethnically. It was diverse religiously. It was this incredibly wealthy city um, because it controlled a lot of overland trade movement between Italy and Asia. So we'll talk more uh, about the city of Corinth and what it meant to be the church in Corinth as we read this letter together. But for now, here is what's happened. Sometime after Paul left Corinth, he wrote them a letter. That was his habit, to write letters. He wrote them a letter uh, addressing specific ethical issues. And he sent that letter with an emissary. And when the emissary came back to him, the church had more questions for Paul. And so Paul wrote... 1 Corinthians. That first letter that he wrote, we don't have. Paul refers to it in 1 Corinthians 5, but the second letter is 1 Corinthians. Um, and he writes that letter to address the questions that they had 
and uh, to address a few more things. So when this emissary comes back from delivering 1 Corinthians, he comes back with news that things have taken a very, very bad turn in the church there. And that there are some who are actively working in that church to undercut Paul as their father in the faith. And so what Paul does is he drops everything. He's in Ephesus at the time. He drops everything and he makes this emergency visit to Corinth. He calls it a painful visit. And he calls it a painful visit because here's what happened when he got there. He was attacked personally by someone in that church. And no one else in the church rose to defend him. And so rather than stay, he left. He wrote another letter. It's another letter that we don't have. Sometimes it's called the tearful letter. And it's called that because Paul wrote it with anguish of heart, he said. He wrote it with many tears. And clearly it must have been a letter that was aiming for reconciliation and restoration. And mostly it had a good effect. Because after the church there read it, the majority of the church was ready to reconcile with Paul. They were ready to work towards uh, healing and restoration. But there was still this recalcitrant minority who was firmly opposed to Paul and continuing to undercut him. We'll talk about why they felt that way about him later. But the point is that Paul wrote 2 Corinthians to do two things. One, to continue to foster reconciliation and healing with his friends and uh, to answer those objections against his ministry that were being leveled against him. It is a tricky tightrope of a letter. And if you read 2 Corinthians, like if you sit down and read it in one sitting, it becomes very obvious very quickly. You can feel that there are significant wounds, significant wounds in Paul, significant wounds in the lives of the people that he's writing to. There are significant wounds that need healing. And so I guess it's no surprise at all that after all of the greetings are out of the way at the beginning of the letter, Paul begins with comfort. You probably caught that as I read it. In verses 3 through 7, Paul uses the word for comfort or consolation 10 times. Clearly, he needs comfort. (laughs) And clearly his friends do too. Those uh, verses, verses 3 through 7, are in the form of a traditional Jewish prayer of blessing. Those prayers went like this. God, you're great because you have done this for us. And so Paul just loads this prayer up with the language of comfort. This is what he says. He calls God the Father of all mercies and the God of all comfort who comforts us in our affliction. So Ben uh, read our Old Testament lesson. It was Isaiah 51. And it's hard to imagine that Paul didn't have something like Isaiah 51 in his mind. Isaiah 51 says, Yahweh comforts Zion. He comforts all of her waste places. He makes her wilderness like Eden. He makes her desert like the garden of God. Man, I love that. And I think it's worth a lifetime of reflection. 
Isaiah says this about God. He says, this is God's habit. This is how our God is. He goes to the places of the most pain and the most desolation, and he turns them into places of comfort and beauty and verdancy. That's what our God is like. You know what I'm talking about? The places that we want to hide from everybody? The places that we're ashamed of? The things in our lives that we want to make excuses about and and redirect people from? The things in your life and mine that make us feel like we're less? God goes to those places to heal and to make them beautiful. And this is where that deep mutuality that I mentioned at the beginning begins to show. Because here's what Paul says, God comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort that we have received from God. It's this beautiful closed cycle of comfort and healing. And there's lots and lots to say about that. But the first thing is to simply say that one of the primary ways that God goes to our wilderness and makes it into an Eden. Look, and I I do not, I have no idea what your wilderness is. (laughs) I have no idea what it is in your life that feels like it is a loss, that feels like pain, that feels like suffering and trouble. I don't know what it is. But I do know that one of the ways that God turns our waste places into Eden is through each other. We are comforted in order to comfort. And I don't know if there's any way that I could overstate that. (laughs) I mean, starting with Jesus and running straight through the rest of the New Testament, there is no one anywhere who on any occasion ever imagines that someone can be a Christian all by themselves. A few, a few years back, I was going through something that was very hard. And uh, it affected every part of my life. It affected me spiritually. It affected me emotionally. It was affecting me physically. And I asked for someone to pray for me. Um, it was one of you, actually, a congregant here. I, I asked for that person to pray for me. And one morning, I woke up and I got an email from that person. And uh, it just had a couple of sentences in it. It was just the prayer that that person had prayed for me earlier that morning. That's it. And I'll tell you, church, um, when I read that email, I fell to my knees and I sobbed about as loud as I've ever sobbed in my whole life. Not because I was sad. but because it was so deeply consoling that I felt like I had been freed from something. And when I stood back up, I felt like a new man. Church, I can't explain that. I don't know how it happened that way. I don't know why it happened that way. This is not a normal part of my daily life, but it happened because someone offered me the comfort that they had been given from God. It was not a tricky, elaborate act on their part. It wasn't anything that was over the top. It was just like they took the loaf of bread they had and they just broke off a piece and gave it to me. And it was exactly what I needed. 
And that's what we do for each other. Because we have been woven together through our faith in Jesus. We have a deep, we have an uncommon mutuality, and it is a deep and uncommon mutuality that God uses to comfort and to heal us. So I'm just saying nurture it. Be with one another. Talk to each other. Tell each other what's up. Build enough trust among each other, among all of you. Build enough trust so that at some point you are able and feel safe enough to be able to say, here's where the wilderness is. Here's where the trouble is. Here's where the wounds are. And then when you hear it, just break off some bread (laughs) and hand it over. Give some of the grace that you have been given. Church, we all need this. We all need it. So in verse 5, Paul goes even deeper into that mutuality. He says, as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. As we share in Christ's sufferings, we share in his comfort. And you just need to know that this is one of the hallmarks of Paul's thinking and writing. This, this is, in many ways, his brilliance and his genius. He plots everything in life to this, which is to say, what is true of Jesus is true of us if we follow him in faith. <laughs> and what that means here is that Jesus suffered for our good, so sometimes we will suffer for others' good. The shape of Jesus' life will be the shape of our life if we follow him in faith. And church, I just want to tell you, if anyone tells you anything different, they're just trying to sell you something. They're just trying to get something from you. Because the truth is, our life will look like Jesus' life. Sometimes we will bear a cross for someone else's good. And that good will definitely come because Jesus was resurrected. When we share in the sufferings of his cross, we share in the comfort of his resurrection. And that's why Paul can say at the end of the prayer, that's why he can say in verse 7, that his hope for them is unshaken. (laughs) It's because they're tied not only to one another, but to Jesus and his resurrected life. And so are we. And there is no other way to be a Christian. So I'll tell you what, when the Corinthians read this prayer, I can promise you they didn't think to themselves, well, this is weird. I don't, why is Paul talking so much about affliction and trouble and comfort and consolation? Why is he talking about all of this stuff? No, they didn't wonder because they got it. Some really bad, bad stuff had passed between them and Paul. That, That visit that Paul had called painful was not just painful for Paul. That letter that he wrote with tears didn't just cost him some tears. It cost some other people some tears too. This was a strange and sad time for all of them, as suffering often is. And I'm sure that one of the things they thought when they were going through it was what people like you and me think when we go through suffering and trouble. We think, why? Why is this happening, God? And I think that that is why Paul tells them about his experience in Asia in verses 8 through 11. It's like a personal example. We don't want you to be unaware of the affliction that we experienced in Asia. 
Now, one of the one of the great mysteries of this letter and of the New Testament really is that we have no idea what Paul's talking about here. It's not recorded for us anywhere, and he doesn't go into any detail about the trouble that he experienced in Asia. In fact, what he says about it is far more weighty and far more fearful than any specifics might be. Because he says the stuff that happened to him there, the stuff that happened to Timothy there, utterly burdened them beyond their strength. To the point that they despaired of life itself. And they thought they had received the sentence of death. I mean, I don't know if it gets any more vulnerable than that. (laughs) He's telling his friends that things got so bad for him and so bad for Timothy that they actually just figured we do not have the capacity to continue anymore. And he had begun to hear those horrific, horrific whispers that say, Paul, it would be better for you if you just let yourself slip under. If you just died and it was over. That is a very, very bad place to be in. A very dark place. If you or someone you love has ever been in a place like that, then you know it is a suffocating dead end. And I'm sure that Paul thought, why? (laughs) Why, God? And he's got one reason. One reason that he can share with his friends. That was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He's certain that one of the reasons he suffered, one of the reasons that he felt what he did, that he experienced what he did in Asia, was so that he would stop thinking that he had all of the answers and all of the strength and all of the resources, and he would learn to rely more deeply on God who raises the dead. And listen, church, if the Apostle Paul, of all people, had to continually learn in his life to not rely on himself and to rely on God, then I think it's a very safe bet that this is something that you and I are going to need to spend our whole lives learning too. And suffering is one of the tools that God graciously uses to lead us to that place where we will rely on him. I think of it like this sometimes, that suffering is a chapter in a book that God wrote. And the name of the book is how I'm going to make you more like Jesus and bring you safely home. Suffering's not the only chapter in that book, but it's a really important one. One of the things that he does in our suffering, one of the things that he is at work in our suffering to do is to teach us how to rely on him. And I think, you know, that this is a very freeing, very liberating thing for people like us because we know deep down, we know it deep down, even if we don't ever like to say it, that we do not have all of the resources and all of the strength and all of the answers to get through life on our own. And we definitely don't have all of the strength and all of the resources and all of the answers to fix this broken world. I mean... You know, sometimes we think we do. 
and it turns some of us into preening, self-righteous blowhards. And it turns others of us into cynical, know-it-all, dropout nihilists. And it makes all of us angry and tired and frustrated and sad and disconsolate. And so sometimes, sometimes we need to be reminded that our shoulders cannot bear the weight of the broken world. And that our shoulders can't even bear the weight of our own broken selves. And suffering is one of the ways that God reminds us of that. And in the scandal of the beautiful way that he works in the world, it is also how he comforts us with the knowledge that there is one whose shoulders are more than up to the task. (laughs) That there is one on whose shoulders all of the collected sin and suffering of the whole world has gone and he has borne it away forever in his resurrection and his ascension. And so we rest in him, church. We rest in Jesus by faith. And I mean, we rest. And so Paul says in verse 10, on him we have set our hope. He will deliver us again. And by that he means that he's confident there's going to be reconciliation. And he's confident that there's going to be healing and restoration between himself and this church that he loves so much. He's confident because they share a deep and uncommon mutuality with one another and with the one who died and was raised for them. Let me pray for us. Father, I ask that you you would help us um, as a people to lean into this truth and not shy away from it. To lean into this mutuality that you have built into the life of the church and into the life of Jesus himself, our elder brother. That we would lean into that. And in particular, that we would lean into that mutuality when we need comfort and when there are people around us who are in pain. Father, do this so that we would grow up in our faith, so that we would mature in our faith, and do this so that we can become a people through whom you can love this broken world. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.